Well, good morning. Wow, all of you are here today. That's awesome. It's nice we can all get together at the same time. I really like that. Uh, welcome, and if, especially if you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, I have uh, a plethora of announcements. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and be brief about it. But I, before I jump into announcements, I wanna share something. Uh, we've been praying for Bev Mirich, who fell and broke something in her back and had all kinds of nerve pain and couldn't get that addressed at the time because of COVID and, and had a surgery and seems like the surgery, it doesn't seem like the surgery didn't work and she was gonna need a second surgery. And uh, within the last couple of weeks, uh, some of us have been praying uh, and I delivered a meal to him and we prayed together and just asked the Lord to make it so that that second surgery was not necessary. And some weird things uh, happened. She was supposed to have the surgery, I think, on Wednesday of this week, and her insurance company wouldn't cover it. And so they postponed it, and I'm, I don't know what's going on there. There should be an appeals process or something one would think. Um, but I said, I said, well, that must be terribly discouraging. And I was told, though, that she has had, since that particular prayer for healing, making the surgery unnecessary, she has had periods of time without any pain for the first time in months. And I say that to tell you that God answers prayer and that we should not be weary in well-doing and that we should be persistent in our prayers. And so let's redouble. It's nice to have a, 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 an episode or two that we're, you're pain-free, but what we want is complete pain relief and the surgery being totally unnecessary. So let's redouble our prayers to that effect. Now on to announcements. 
Um, the first one that I want to highlight to you, because I didn't put it up on Facebook as I was supposed to do, and that's my bad, is that Timothy and Michelle are hosting a, uh, a meeting for anybody that's at all interested in the worship team uh, in any of its aspects. And um, they will bribe you with pizza. <laughs> Which is, and, and this meeting is on 115. Is that just after church? Right after church, okay. Well, and, and there might be a good reason for, for some people to hang out. Um, I, I, you'll notice that the Christmas decorations are up. That is not laziness on my part. It is strategic laziness on my part. Um, I, I, I introduced during Advent the concept more, a little more fully of the church year. And how many of you are familiar with that old song, The Twelve Days of Christmas? Right? Does anybody know what the Twelve Days of Christmas actually are? That is the period between December 25th, which is Christmas, and January 6th, which is the Feast of the Epiphany, which celebrates the wise men coming to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem to see baby Jesus. And so those are the 12 days of Christmas, so it's appropriate to leave your decorations up. If you're paying attention to the church calendar, it's appropriate to leave your decorations up until January 6th, and this is the first Sunday after. However, it's time for them to go, and I don't want to do it by myself. So how about next Sunday, those of you that are interested in staying for, uh, for the worship team meeting, do that, and those of us that are interested in cleaning up will steal their pizza while they're meeting. <laughs> we can bang this out probably in about 45 minutes. It's not that big a deal to, to take all the decorations down. We would certainly appreciate help. So if you could stay after church uh, and, and next week and do that, that would be wonderful. Uh, other announcements there are to make. Well, we've got all these Sunday school classes that are going on and everything's back up and in full swing. They're listed in your bulletin. Uh, and we've got our senior uh, ministry has started uh, up again. That's Job 12.12. And uh, this week we will be making chocolate snowmen, which seems like a contradiction in terms, but okay. Um, lunch, that's lunch, that's uh, discussion time and a video and uh, a craft and some prayer. And it's just a wonderful time. I encourage you to come. I encourage you to invite people. Awana is back up and running. And we will be meeting. Uh, all the spiritual formation groups will be meeting. So my, my house tomorrow night for the Monday night group and Wednesday night here for the Wednesday night group. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper today, obviously. And uh, if you're visiting with us, the only requirement to partake of the Lord's Supper is that you're a baptized, born-again Christian who's not harboring unconfessed sin in your heart. And if that's you and, and you feel like you can partake in good conscience, you are welcome to partake. We don't close the table, but we do fence the table. We encourage you to examine yourself carefully on these things. I think that's all. Um, yeah, I'll deal with the prayer request during prayer time. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we have our call to worship and begin the worship of Almighty God. Good morning. The call to worship this morning is Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word.
Please bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for your morning, Lord, and uh, we thank you for this new year, Lord. Help us, Lord, to focus on you now and uh, set aside our, our, our busy lives and the things that we need to chase after, God, and help us to focus on you, uh, the one that uh, sees us through this life, God. Guide and direct us in all that we do, and uh, thank you so much for Jesus and all that he did for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Yeah. Sixty chapters earlier in Isaiah, he'd had an encounter with the Lord that informed his perspective as he, as he speaks for the Lord in Isaiah 66, I'm the Lord and heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. I hope it's your desire to, today to have an encounter with the Lord, to meet him in this place, to see something about him that, that changes you. I've prayed that for you this morning. Let's trust the Lord to answer. Would you stand with me? Let's confess with Isaiah the holiness of God. I see the Lord seated on the throne, exalted, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And the whole earth is filled, and the whole earth is filled, and the whole earth is filled, earth is filled with His glory. Let's sing that again. I see the Lord. I see the Lord.
in the presence of our God. Okay, it's time for the children's message. If all the kids can come down front. All right. Oh, we got a small crowd. We might have to recruit some help from... Uh... All right. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. <laughs> okay, we're going to talk today about really easy subject. We're going to talk about this book and find out what you know about the Bible. What do you guys know about this book? What? <laughs> Don't give all the answers, Brian. I have to pull out my cheat sheet. So what do you know about the Bible? What's special about the Bible? What do you know about it? Is it special? Is it like any other book? If I grabbed a book from the library, would it be the same? No, it's different. Why is it different? Because it's all kind of different. It has um, different titles. Yes, yeah, so that's a key one, right? It's a collection of books. And actually, there's like 66 books all in here. You guys know the book. You know how long this is? There's like 600. I have all these useless facts this morning. There's 611,000 words in the Bible. That's a lot of words. But it's not as long as Harry Potter. So if you've read Harry Potter, you guys can read this, but it's, it's a job, right? It's a, it's a little bit of a chore. So that's what you're up against. So what else? So it's a collection of books. What else? Are those special books? Why are they special books? Who wrote those books? God's people. God's people. 40 different, at least 40 different people wrote the books that are in the Bible, and it took um, somewhere, it took over 500 years to write the book, okay? Was it, you think it was written in English to begin with? It was written in Hebrew? and a little bit of Aramaic and Greek. So it was written. So the Bible that we have today is not the original words. The original words are in a different language. And that's why guys like Pastor Brian, they'll read us a verse in English, and then he can immediately go back and say, but this is how it was originally written. And he brings in all these other interesting meanings from the Greek. Another important thing to remember is that the majority of the Bible <clears throat> is from a Jewish perspective, okay? So our Jewish friends, they have this history and this knowledge of the Bible, and it's important for us to understand a lot of their traditions because a lot of their traditions help explain why the Bible was written the way it was written. Here's another thing about the Bible. If you read it in order, that's not necessarily the order that it happened in history. So it's not in any order. See, that's why we have to have a guy like Pastor Brian, because it's not an easy task. And it's good to go to, this is a little commercial for Sunday school, it's good to go to Sunday school because that's when you can talk and say, wait a minute, I read this in the Bible and it doesn't make sense to me. 
Uh, can, let's talk about that. And that's what we do in, in Bible study. Let's see, are there some other things we can go over? Brian, am I missing anything about how important the Bible is? It's the inspired word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the key verse for today that Miss Lori's going to talk to you about is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. So these over 40 guys that, that wrote the Bible, they were all inspired by God to do that. And so that's a really important thing. And again, that's the thing that makes the Bible separate and different than any other book. All right, that's all I got for today. Good deal. Turn it back over to Brian. All right. Kaylee needs round glasses. So I left my sheet up front. In my zeal to participate in the children's sermon, I left my prayer notes up front. Our question for the, from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning is uh, question number 37. Uh, still working our way, actually, a, a confession within a confession. We're looking at the, um, the Apostles' Creed. The question is, what do you confess when you say that he suffered during all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end? Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning, and it's kind of silly to say it that way, because there is nowhere where you are not. We never leave your presence. You're always with us. You're always watching. You're always just as close as our next breath. But you're not always manifest everywhere. We're not always aware of you. Sometimes you're hidden. And we ask that you would come this morning and make your presence and your power manifest among us as we worship you. Come and inhabit the praises of your people as you have promised to do. And Father, we, we come to you this morning with a list of needs and concerns among the people of this congregation. And uh, I, I just want to start by praying for Darla and ask, oh Lord, that now that the surgery is over and she's healing up, that uh, the, whatever the treatment plan is from here on out will be both easily bearable and very effective, and that she would be completely healed and liberated from cancer and would have no further recurrences of it for the rest of her life, and let it be a long, long life. Father, we, we lift up um, Adam's family who are still grieving, and things are still fresh, and the holidays are, are just a horrible time to process loss. So many traditions and memories are are suddenly thrown in your face and how jarring the losses are and the changes are becomes very hard to escape from. Have mercy on them, O Lord. Help them to grieve and to grieve well and to grieve for the time that they need to grieve, but then, Father, to 
to be able to strengthen and, and walk on. And let them know, Lord, in the midst of the darkness that um, though things will never be good in the same way again, things will be good again. Father, we lift up Bev and, and we rejoice that, uh, that you seem to have partially answered our prayers, that she has had uh, moments, hours, periods of time where, where she has no pain. And that is truly remarkable, for it has been her constant companion low these many months. And it may be, in, in your providence, uh, one of your great jokes that you would uh, cause this surgery to be delayed so that you could heal her without the surgery, and you could get the glory, and the insurance company could just stuff it. And we ask, oh Lord, that you would do that. We pray, Father, for her complete healing. And we ask that you would raise her up in strength and give her back her life. Let her be able to move and sit and sleep and think and walk and do all the things that a, a healthy woman is able to do. Father, we lift up Nick and we ask that you would continue to strengthen him and add to all the graces that you've given him through his cancer. We lift up uh, Pastor Mike Wellington and pray for his heart surgery and ask that it would go well and be effective. We pray for Carol, Father. She's had a couple of falls here recently, and one of them uh, caused her to break uh, some bones in her knee. And um, we, we ask, oh Lord, first of all, that you would heal that and that it would be uh, not very painful or intrusive to do so. But we also pray that you would just protect her from any further falls. I don't like to see that, Father. So protect her. We pray for Ron, and, and uh, thank you that he's back with us among us this morning and was here to greet everybody. Uh, I ask, Father, that you would um, be with him and, and help his memory, help him to, to function and to be at rest. He's got to take care of Joanne, and, and we ask for strength for her as she's having a lung drained on Thursday, and ask, Father, that that would be uh, not too painful and would also be very effective. We pray for Mark Altabelli, and we, we ask, O oh Lord, that now that he's had his surgery, he is in great pain, and uh, the pain meds are not really keeping it under control. And I just pray, Father, that you would relieve that pain and that his healing would be thorough. If it needs to be slow to be thorough, so be it, but that his healing would be thorough and would be regular and would be consistent and that there would be no permanent damage to his foot from this horrible accident. We pray for his future, that that none of this would affect his ability to work and walk and do his job. And uh, he's a physical guy and he needs his body to be in good shape and he takes good care of it. Please, Father, heal that foot. Lord, we lift up uh, those whose marriages are in difficulty and we ask for your healing touch upon them. We pray for repentance and we pray for you to turn the hearts of the husbands to the wives and the wives to the husbands. We pray for forgiveness and gentleness and respect and love and all of those things. A slowness to anger and a quickness to hear, a slowness to speak. That's just wisdom, Lord. We pray for those who are struggling with various diseases of the mind or more properly the brain, those who are prone to depression those who are prone to anxiety, uh, those who are prone to uh, swings back and forth in mood and, and in uh, thinking. We pray for those who are struggling with schizophrenia 
and uh, all the other things that can afflict us, Father. It's, it's hard to undergo that. It's hard to solve that. It's hard to live with that if you're a close loved one sometimes. And, and we just ask, Father, for grace upon grace and healing upon healing. Um, those things are just as, um, just as important and just as stubborn and just as acute as Bev's back. And yet they're far less visible and we really don't don't have a good grasp of just how hard it is to function around that sometimes. So give grace, Father. Give strength where it's needed. We pray for Beth Ann and her migraines and would just ask, Father, that she would gain long-lasting relief. I know the last few months have been a little tougher, and I just ask, Father, for complete liberation from that. Lord, we, we lift up our church, and I'm going to ask you once again, as I'm going to ask you every Sunday until you do it, that you would raise up from among the community in Youngstown 300 who want to come here and get to know you, learn to love you, uh, learn to follow you and obey you, and learn to be transformed by you in this place. And we, we would love, Father, a good mix of people. We want those who don't know you right now and who are going to come and be saved by Jesus. And we pray that that would happen as a result of us being faithful to your commands and telling people the good news of the gospel. We pray, Father, for those who are more mature and they're perhaps in churches where the word is not taught, um, churches where discipline is horribly, um, horribly neglected and they're not good, safe places spiritually or even socially perhaps. And we ask, oh Lord, that uh, if it's permissible that they would extricate themselves from those entanglements and that they would come here and that they would find here a place of healing and rest and instruction. Father, we want people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. We want people from all different parts of Asia, and we want people from Africa, and we want black Americans and Caribbean Americans here. Father, we want, we want Latinos and Hispanics to come, and we want this place to look like Youngstown, and we want this place to look like your kingdom. Father, we would pray, I pray for those who are in the Muslim community. I pray that we would bring some of those folks to Christ. And let them be a bridge into their community. Lord, just do it. Just raise up and make this church a light again. The, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And we, we, need, we need them. We need them to do what you want us to do. And we'll give you all the glory. We won't run this on personalities and programs and money and things like that. We're just going to do it by your spirit. And we'll give you all the glory. Father, we pray for our nation, our leaders, and those in authority, and we ask, O King, that you would restrain them from evil and cause them to walk in the right. And uh, do it quick, Father, because they're just running after evil as fast as they can, some of them. Just restrain this, Father. Have mercy on our nation. But we know that our, our problems ultimately are not political, that the politics is just an expression of what's going on in most people's hearts, and we are a nation that is astray. And we are a nation full of people who take your name on their lips while their hearts are far from you. And we pray for revival. First amongst your people, that you would convert the unconverted in the pews, the, the church-going unbeliever, that you, would, that you would strengthen the church-going believer into one who is not just a church attender, but a, one who's, who worships and loves and serves you with spiritual gifts that you've given as you've commanded. We pray, Father, for keen minds and hearts to seek hard after spiritual things. 
We pray, Father, for our fellow churches in this community. We ask that you would raise up men and women in the congregations who would bless those places and serve you and worship you there. We pray for their pastors as they take the pulpit week in and week out. Keep them from the disease of giving the sheep whatever the sheep want. Uh, Give them instead the ability to feed the sheep on the word of God in a balanced way. Give them unction by the Holy Spirit as they preach and cause revival to break out there too. Father, in all these things we lift up, we do it in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy work be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The deacons would come forward. We'll receive our, well, we'll pray for our morning tithes and offerings. We don't have the plates here. We're a little deacon light today. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the privilege of giving to you because you don't need anything. You are the one who owns it all. And you say in your word, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, the gold and the silver, they are mine. And if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. And yet you take, you say to us, give, give to me, give to me a portion of what I've given to you. Well, Lord, it's, it's all yours, and we're going to give back to you that portion that you asked for, and we're going to do it joyously, and we're going to do it in anticipation that you will continue to bless and provide. In Jesus' name, amen. As we give and we continue in worship, uh, we're going to declare what we believe as we do when we sing. Um, there's a couple lines in what we're going to sing that connect directly to the catechism. We, the catechism today spoke about the wrath of God. We can't deal with that on our own. We need Jesus to do that for us. And, and your hallelujah really is prompted by the fact that the, the catechism says there's only, that Jesus is the only atoning sacrifice. Atonement is being at one with God. Because of our sin, we were not. But because of Jesus, we can be at one with God again. And if there's ever a reason for hallelujah, that is it. I invite you to stand with us and let's sing of Jesus.
as I ran, but as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to
Please be seated. Our texts this morning are two, and I'm giving you a heads up because you probably have a hard time finding them. They're in sections of the Bible that most people don't spend a lot of time in anymore. And uh, we're actually going to be dancing all around this section of the Bible. It's called the Minor Prophets, uh, as well as the book of Ezra, which is a historical book. The first one comes from the book of Zechariah. So if you open up your Bible to Matthew and then hit reverse and go back two books, you'll hit Zechariah. That's the easiest way to find it is to start at Matthew and go backwards. And Zechariah chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. This is the Word of God. Then the Word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of, of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, excuse me. And then the book of Ezra, which you're going to have to hit reverse and go back to just before the Psalms. 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 3. Now just to set the scene here, Ezra is... Uh, one who brought a party of exiles back from Babylon after 70 years of captivity. The Jewish people have kept, had been captive in Babylon. And, uh, and he's bringing a group back, and they're going to rebuild the temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians seven years earlier, 70 years earlier. Ezra chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Now, in the second year after, the coming, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upwards to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. And so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout 
and the sound was heard from far away. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would make your book live for us. Uh, we didn't come here to hear a man talk. We're not here to listen to a knowledgeable fellow speak with emphasis. We are here because we understand what your Bible says, that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the Lord's day, and the man of God stands up and preaches the word of God, if he does it right and if you bless it, then your word goes forth in spiritual power. And it begins doing things in the minds and in the hearts of everybody present. And that's the only thing that's gonna produce lasting value. So we look to you and we ask you to do what only you can do and make your book live. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, um, as I've mentioned in the past few months in a, in a few different places and at a few different times, um, in 586 BC, the Babylonian army came from what is today the Persian Gulf area of Iraq between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And they came north and then through Turkey and south and they invaded the tiny nation of Judah which was itself a leftover. Uh, God had destroyed, the, the kingdoms had split after Solomon died. He had the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom was wicked and proceeded or per, per, persevered in their wickedness, rather, until they invited the judgment of God. And so God wiped them out in 722 BC, carried them off to a place uh, which is today in eastern Turkey and Armenia and they disappeared. So if you've ever heard the phrase, the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that's why they're lost. Well, the two tribes that made up the southern nation, Judah, persisted, and they were not much better off spiritually and morally than their northern neighbors had been. And God sent warnings over and over again, but they didn't listen. And so less than 200 years later, God sends the Babylonians to destroy them. And the Babylonian army comes in, it lays siege to Jerusalem, it breaks down the walls, and these soldiers poured into the city, robbing and raping and looting and burning, and they ransacked the temple of God from which the Shekinah glory had fled. And they utterly destroyed the temple which Solomon had built some 500 years earlier. The temple of the Lord that Isaiah described in his vision when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train filled the temple, the train of his robe, that, that temple was destroyed. And the Babylonians then deported almost the whole population to Babylon as captives. And they only left behind a small number of the poorest of the land to work the fields and orchards and vineyards in order to keep the land from going wild again. And some anonymous psalmist who was carried off to captivity records his experiences in the 137th Psalm written during this period. And in Psalm 137, he writes, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung our lyres. 
For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. There's despair there. They didn't believe it was going to happen. God sent Jeremiah right before it happened and said, hey guys, the Babylonians are coming. There's nothing you can do about it. Just surrender. It'll go better that way. And everybody went, uh-uh. God's not going to let us be destroyed. We got the temple of the Lord here. You can't even walk in the Holy of Holies without being struck. No pagan be able to touch that. And it was destroyed. God had been crystal clear through the pens of the prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah in particular, that this utter conquest and ruin had come about as a judgment for the sin of the people of God. Now, this series of events... The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of Solomon's temple, the cessation of temple worship and sacrifice, the deporting of the people of God out of the promised land, these created a huge wound, a psychological and spiritual wound in the minds and hearts of the Jewish people. They were dumbfounded. They did not believe anything like this could happen to them, because they thought they were basically pretty good people. They weren't. They thought they were. And in order to keep them from being utterly crushed by despair and to just utterly give up and to say, forget it, and, and we'll just assimilate into the, the Babylonian culture and we'll marry pagan our, our pagan neighbors and speak their language and worship their gods, and to keep them from doing that, God promised them that this judgment was not a permanent state of affairs. In the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, there's a letter that's sent by the prophet Jeremiah at the command of God to the Jewish exiles that are in Babylon. And in this letter, God tells them, settle down for the long haul, guys. Build houses, plant gardens, give your children in marriage, and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, and you just prosper there. I'll watch over you. And this letter is the context for one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. This is what God, listen to this in its original context. Everything that they thought could never happen had happened, and now they're living in Babylon, and they're not happy. And, and God says, I'm not done with you. I know it's terrible, but I'm not done with you. And Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. 
In other words, God says, I have judged you. You don't need to look anywhere else for the cause of this but me and you. But I'm not done with you. I judged you severely, but I have not utterly forsaken you. I have plans for you, and they're good plans. And you will return to Jerusalem and rebuild it in 70 years. And 70 years later, that's exactly what happened. There's all kinds of wars and conquests and things like that that happen in the pagan world. We don't need to go into that. But the king at that time, Cyrus, was moved in his heart. And he was moved in his heart because God moved his heart. And he said to any of the Jewish exiles who wanted to go back, you can go back to Jerusalem now. You can take your family and you can go. Only a relative handful did. And they returned in three groups at three different times under the leadership of different men. The one group returned under the leadership of Nehemiah, and that's the book of Nehemiah, and they rebuilt the city walls to provide a secure environment for the people. And that was actually the last group that got there. That was 445 BC. The first group returned under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, who we mentioned in our readings today. That was in 515. And a third group returned under the leadership of Ezra in 458. And we find these stories about this period of time in the the life of the people of God in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. This guy Zerubbabel, he was an important guy. And the fact that his name was Zerubbabel is significant because it was a Babylonian name even though he was a Jewish guy. So they only did that to people that they put in positions of power. For instance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were not their Hebrew names. Those were the new names that were given to them by the king when he took them into his service. And Zerubbabel was tasked with, by the king with rebuilding the temple. And he was even given the gold and the silver vessels that the king of Babylon had stolen from the first temple. He was given an allotment of money, and he was given permission to harvest timber in order to rebuild the temple. And so they went back to rebuild that temple. Now I want you to think about for a minute, just picture in your head, think about the people living in amongst the rubble today in places like Ukraine, where the cities are just decimated, many of them. Or think about the pictures that you've seen of the German civilians living among the rubble of Berlin, or Dresden, or Frankfurt, immediately after the end of World War II. That's a picture of how life was for these these Jewish people to come back after 70 years and live in Jerusalem after it was destroyed. They they would walk into the city and and there's rubble everywhere and there's not a house standing. And any houses that had been standing, the roof fell in a long time ago. The bones of the unburied dead were strewn around the city. There were pagan enemies around them that did not want the exiles there, that saw them as a threat, and so they harassed them. There were wild animals because the walls were down that could just wander in and out at will, including lions and bears. And so they roamed the ruined streets looking for prey. 
As I said before, most of the houses were destroyed or had sat empty for 70 years, and so life for these people that came back was extremely hard, especially for this first group that came back under Zerubbabel. They could rejoice that they were back in the promised land, but they faced the prospect of decades of backbreaking labor in the midst of the ruins of this once glorious, powerful, wealthy city. And that, friends, was a reality that was disheartening to many of them. And I think you could understand that. You and I would feel the same way. One episode captures this intimately, and it's one of our texts for today. In Ezra chapter 3 and verse 8, it says that Zerubbabel, quote, made a beginning. He made a beginning. So he went up on the Temple Mount. And he cleared with a a gang of men, and they cleared the rubble from the Temple Mount, all the stones that had been cast down. They They wouldn't just, like, knock the rocks down. They would actually build fires next to them and get them really hot and then pour water on it so those great stones would crack, so they couldn't be used anymore. And they would tear down all the walls. They, they, they would just so thoroughly destroy everything. And it was, they were making a point when they did that. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, we're going to rob your house. We're going to ransack things. It was, you're done. There's not even going to be a hint of you or anything good that you left when we're done here. And so they had completely destroyed that temple. They burned all the wood up and everything else. After they took the, the gold and the silver. And, and so, they, so here these people come, and they clear this rubble away, the shattered stones, the charred remains of the wooden beams and the cedar panels, and uh, all of the refuse of a once glorious temple that had been lying there untouched for seven decades, perhaps shattered remnants of ornate carved stones or elaborately and beautifully sculpted wooden features were dug out of the rubble pile. And there were old men there who had served in that first temple, in Solomon's temple, And they remembered it. See, Solomon's temple was glorious. It was, there was nothing like it on earth. It was glorious. And and so they they remembered all that glory. Maybe they picked up a piece of burned wood that had a carving on it. And they said, I remember exactly where this went in the temple. And, And once the site had been sufficiently cleaned, they laid again the foundation stones for the house of the Lord. Now, all they were doing at that point was just outlining the perimeter of the wall of the temple. I mean, this is the beginning of the beginning. But once that perimeter was completed, we have this strange scene. The priests come in, they're dressed in their vestments, and they come forth and they blow trumpets And the Levites crash cymbals together. And they praise God. And they praise God in the the words of the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, that his steadfast love endures forever. And the whole assembly sang praises to the Lord. And they did it antiphonally. So you'd have one group over here singing, and then the other group would answer them singing, and they'd sing back and forth. And so there's this call and response. And these young men were so jazzed, they just rejoiced. But there were others present who had other emotions. They were those old men who remembered the temple that had been 
the temple that was destroyed, Solomon's temple. They could see it in their mind's eye. They could see the the rich furnishings of bronze. They could smell the utterly unique smell of the holy incense, which it was prohibited for anybody else to make or use. It was that special incense for the worship of God. And so it had a unique smell, and they'd, they'd smelled that their whole lives. They could wonder at being only a few yards away from the place where the the very presence of the God of Israel dwelling in the mercy seat had dwelt. And they remembered how the whole interior was clad in gold leaf overlaid over these cedar panels. Such beauty, such glory. And they thought of that. And then they looked down at this rectangle of rocks on top of a barren mountain littered with more rocks in the midst of the utter destruction of that city. And they remembered the goodness of what had been lost. They meditated on how low Israel had been brought by the Lord. And that loss overwhelmed them. And in the midst of the songs of joy, they raised their own voices and they wept bitterly. And the sound of their weeping was as loud as the sounds of the rejoicing of the young, and there were fewer of them. So their cries were louder. Something good has been lost forever. And it was not clear that what was being built to replace it was going to be anywhere near as good. And so those old men grieved that loss, even as they participated in this new beginning. There were enemies nearby. In particular, the ancestors of the people who in Jesus' day were known as the Samaritans. And the story of how those people got there is interesting. Because when that northern kingdom had been conquered and destroyed, and they had, the king had the Assyrian king had deported those 10 tribes. He didn't just leave the land empty. He brought people from another part of the kingdom, pagans, to to, to come in and settle that land because he didn't want anything empty. The policy was, hey, if I take them out of the land where their God dwells, they won't be able to get strong against me. So their God lives there here in, in, in Judah and in Israel, and that's his place. And if we remove the people and put them somewhere else, then that God won't be with them anymore. They'll be all alone and they'll be easy for me to control. And the same held true for these pagans that were somewhere else. Their God, Chemosh or Molech or whoever it was, you know, he, he dwells in that land over there. So if I take these people and bring them over here, they won't be able to resist me. So, so he brought these pagans in and settled them just north of Jerusalem. And, and, they started setting up shop and living in everybody else's houses and eating out of their gardens and everything and worshiping their foreign gods. And God sent wild animals among them. They started hunting them and killing them and the people soon figured out this is not um, natural. This is supernatural. And so they, so they sent emissaries back to the king and said, king, the God of this land wants something from us and we don't know what to give him. So could you get a couple of priests from the exiles and bring them back here so they can teach us to worship the God of this land properly and teach us his ways, and then maybe the lions will stop coming and eating my children. 
And the king went, okay, that seemed reasonable. So he sent priests there, and these priests taught these people how the, the religion of the Jewish people. And so he taught, them to, he taught them to worship God. But they didn't quit worshiping their pagan idols either. They just kind of added it. It's like, okay, well, if we do this, it'll buy off the God of this land. And those people ended up being the Samaritans. Well, these Samaritans, they're not called that yet, but that's what they'll be called later. They, uh, they said, hey, you guys are rebuilding the temple, huh? That's neat. Can we help? Because, you know, we worship this God too. They didn't really want to help. They wanted to get in there and spy and muck up the works and cause trouble. And, and the Jewish uh, people wisely said, no, we're, we're not going to let you. And they said, okay, plan B. We'll go to the king and uh, we'll... Uh, We'll tell him that you guys are rebuilding fortifications against him and, and you're very rebellious. And then he'll put a stop to it. And so that's what they did. They went to the king, the, the pagan king, the, the Babylonian king, at this Persian at this time, and, and they said, oh king, those people that went back to Jerusalem, they, they're rebuilding stuff in the city of Jerusalem, and you should stop them before they're able to rebuild enough stuff of military significance that they can rebel against you. Just look at their history, king. Search your records and look at their history. You'll see these people are a lot of trouble. And the king said, that's a good idea. Make them stop. And so these guys sent a goon squad around and made them stop working on everything except their own houses. Now, the king was primarily concerned about the rebuilding of the walls and the defensive structures. The goon squad made them stop any work on both the wall and the temple. But the previous king had actually declared that the, the decreed that the temple was to be rebuilt and had even given money for it. And these Persian kings, they had an odd tradition. Once a king had made a decision or a decree, it could never be overturned. It could never be overturned by the king himself. We see this in the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Hey, king, issue a decree that anybody that worships any god but you for the next 30 days gets thrown in the lion's den. The king says, okay, that's a good idea. Oh, king, we're going to throw Daniel in there. Oh, that's a bad idea. I, I don't want that. Too bad. You decreed it. You can't take it back. So the king was actually stuck by his own law. So, so the king and no future king could overturn it either. And so... You know, there was an appeals process. In other words, all the Jews had to do was send somebody and say, you know, King, I understand your concerns here, but look, the guy two kings before you decreed that we come back here and, and rebuild this temple, and it can't be changed. So, and he even gave money for it. And here's the receipts. Just search your records and find out if this is true. And the king would have said, oh yeah, okay, you can rebuild the temple, but don't rebuild the walls. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. And they didn't do it for 20 years. So they laid a, a rectangle of rocks on the top of the mountain and went, hey, everybody parties. Some guys cried. And then nothing for 20 years. Why? Primarily because they were disappointed with God and disappointed with what God had done. Primarily because they thought God had failed them. I mean, 
can make a pretty good case for that, can't you? They were constantly harassed by their enemies because they lived in a place with no city wall and no resources to defend themselves. And things were just hard. And it didn't look like it was ever going to get better. And so they tried to solve that problem according to human wisdom. And so they began to seek out alliances with these enemies. And the primary way of doing that was through intermarriage. So I, my son will marry your daughter, O pagan, and, uh, and, and then we'll be friends. We'll have an alliance. Well, God had forbidden the intermarriage of the Jews and the pagans because it was spiritually dangerous. It was Solomon's marriage to his foreign wives, which was done out of political convenience, and his construction of pagan shrines so those wives could worship their gods, which was a continual snare to the children of Israel and which ultimately brought the judgment of God in the form of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So that was a bad idea. Now, if the woman converted like Ruth, well, that was one thing, but these women weren't converting. They were still worshiping their false gods and they were enticing their husbands to do so. But what else are you gonna do? You can't rely on God to take care of you, can you? You can't obey God. Not in these things, it's not practical. You can't do things God's way and trust that he'll take care of you and that he'll make a way where you don't see a way. That you, that's just not practical. You can't live that way, can you? Well, when your heart is cold towards God, that's how you think. And of course, when your heart is cold towards God like that, the next thing to go is the neglect of his worship. And that's what they did. They let that rectangle of rocks that they had rejoiced over and wept over just sit there. They just quit showing up to work on it. They said, well, we're, we're too busy right now. We're busy people. We have our own stuff going on. I, I got to fix up my own house. I, I got to take care of my own business. I, I don't have time for this. Can't you hire some professionals or something? You got to have me do it. I'm not going to do it. Not my problem. So they just quit showing up. They also quit giving. They quit tithing. And when they did give something, it was their leftovers, their defectives. God had always told them to bring their first fruits and their unblemished best. And they began to keep those for themselves and to spend those on themselves. Well, the priests lived off of those tithes, and the withholding of those tithes meant the priests neglected the ministry to go do other things. And so the men who put themselves in their slots as priests were corrupt, they were unqualified, they were unconcerned about the spiritual well-being of the people, they were not ministering among the people and teaching them the word of God. They were just using their positions that they slid into to profit themselves and to aggrandize themselves. And so a sort of shallow, visible religious life continued. The altar which had stood outside of the temple in the courtyard had been rebuilt, and so there were still sacrifices of a sort that were offered by priests of a sort but they were offered by a people whose hearts were cold towards God, who fulfilled their outward duties while inwardly they were cynical and indifferent and even hostile and definitely self-absorbed. But the temple of God 
was neglected. It's an empty ruin. They were disappointed with God. They were disappointed with life. They were struggling economically. They were working themselves to death to try and get ahead, but always seemed to be behind. They always ran out of money before the end of the month. And that only increased their resentment and hard-heartedness against God. It has struck me in the last few weeks that there are more than a few similarities between that period and the history of the people of God in that place and our history in this place, our church. Tabernacle used to be big, used to be crowded, used to be busy. It looked impressive, had a certain reputation in the community. All kinds of people came and went. I like to joke. I, I go around town and I meet people and they're like, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. Where do you pastor Tabernacle? Oh, I used to go there. You can't swing a dead cat in Youngstown without hitting somebody that used to go to this church. It's the truth. And people came and went basking in the glow of this reputation. And there was much that was good. There was much that was useful and God-honoring going on here. But the enemy makes it his priority to attack churches like that. And tabernacle is no exception. And Satan's main weapon to attack the church is people. People who outwardly seem to belong to the people of God, but inwardly really belong to Satan. Jesus told a parable about this. They are the tares, the weeds that are sown by the enemy amongst the wheat. And the tares in Jesus' passage are a particular kind of weed. They're, they're often called false wheat. It's called bearded darnel. It looks like wheat. Uh, even a trained botanist can hardly tell it apart when they're immature. It looks like wheat until it's time to produce fruit. And then it doesn't produce any edible, recognizable grain, and what it does produce is poison. So if you eat it, or if you eat flour contaminated with it, it's poisonous. And Satan sent those people among us, and things began to happen unnoticed for a long time in the shadows, secret things, destructive things, ugly things, shameful things. Holy and solemn vows were broken. Baptismal vows, membership vows, ordination vows, marriage vows, professional codes of ethics, all were broken within the walls of this church. And as he uses these people for his weapons platform, he is able to exert a negative influence even on the true Christians. And so he works to stir up a spirit of discontent, of strife, of murmuring, and he launches that spirit into the church. And there's coldness and hardness of heart and pride, and strained relationships, 
and valuing other things more than the truth of God and the pure worship of God. Ego-driven projects multiplied. People seized authority and power that did not belong to them, and they used it to draw disciples after themselves or to use the church's resources to accomplish their pet projects, which created a lack of trust and a lack of charity. Well, you reap what you sow. That is a spiritual principle direct from the mouth of God. You reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh corruption. And that's true in individual lives, and it's true in the life of a congregation. Paul says that we're all building something with our lives for Jesus. And the building materials Paul lists are gold and silver and precious stones, but also wood and hay and stubble when we're building foolishly. And Paul says fire will come and will try our works, that which we have built. And the gold and the silver and the precious stones will stand forever, but the wood and the hay and the stubble will be burned up and they will leave an ashy mess behind for somebody else to clean up. The fire's here, folks. It has been for over five years. And there's a lot of ashes laying around. And quite naturally, some of us are like these old men standing on that mountaintop 2,500 years ago, looking at that rectangle of rocks on the ground and remembering what the old temple was like and grieving for the lost past. They said, oh, those were the good old days. When Solomon's temple stood proudly on this mountaintop and they wailed in grief. And I understand that. And some of you are looking around and wailing in grief. Oh, the old days. I hear a lot about the old days. Oh, when we had 500 people showing up. Oh, when we had this thing going on. Oh, when we took the kids there and did that. Oh, when we taught this class and that class and it was so well attended. You know, what's interesting, though, is it's not clear from the text that the old men realized in their grief that the good old days hadn't been very good at all, and as a matter of fact, had it invited the judgment of God in the first place. And that was precisely why they were where they were 70 years later. So it's not clear we're talking about grief. I mean, well, it is clear we're talking about grief, but it's not clear that we're talking about clear-eyed grief mixed with repentance. And the fact that they so quickly abandoned the work of rebuilding after so little opposition seems to me to indicate that they were more interested in nostalgia than in the living God whom they were created to worship and serve. That God had disappointed them, they thought. And that's a temptation for us as well. Nothing wrong with nostalgia. Nice. But you can't let it keep you from going forward. Well, into this situation, God sent three prophets, three different prophets with three different complementary messages. And the names of those prophets were Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. 
And their prophecies are contained in those little short books at the end of your Old Testament, which most Christians don't understand and which most Christians don't read more than once when they're going through their one-year Bible. And through the pen of the prophet Haggai, God speaks. And God's message through Haggai basically was consider your ways. Consider your ways. Haggai 1, verses 3 through 11. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, consider your ways. Go up on the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it, that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Consider your ways. Things are not going well in your life because your priorities are in the wrong place. So I brought down a curse on all the work of your hands. You'll have enough to get by, but you won't ever be comfortable until you do something that I want you to do. Consider your ways. You have neglected me and my worship in favor of worldly interests worldly pursuits, worldly comforts, worldly concerns. So you set your affections on that? I'm just going to curse all that. You'll wear yourself out with real estate and get nothing but heartache out of it until you reorder your priorities and start rebuilding my house. Through the pen of Malachi, God says, Get serious about your worship. Get serious about your worship of me. Purify it and take it seriously. Malachi is the last book in your Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter 1, in verse 6, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? God answers, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? 
Present them to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. In Malachi chapter 3, and verse 8, God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. This is the only place in the Bible where God says, put me to the test. Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that is the rule, except right here on this issue. Put me to the test, he says, try me and I'll bless you. And I'll bless the fruit of your hands and your work will pay off. You won't spend all your time spinning your wheels and hitting your head. You know, these three were not the only ones who prophesied about these times. Jeremiah had foreseen it too, and so to the priests who were corrupt and foolish, God has a message first through Malachi in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. God says through Malachi, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you clowns have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And then if we want to turn back to Jeremiah, which is several books back in Jeremiah chapter 3. Now, Jeremiah prophesied before all this happened. Jeremiah prophesied before... Jerusalem had been destroyed. And in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 14, God says, Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall gather to it. So God says to the priests, I will work a supernatural work among you. You know, yeah, I'm going to leave that alone for right now. Through the pen of Zechariah, God says, 
I will help you supernaturally. I will work among you so that you are helped in your labor and in your rebuilding. And, and the help that you get and the result that you get won't be a human result. It, it will be more than human. It, it, will, it won't be a result of wealth or power or human techniques. It will begin very modestly. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that spiritually significant things will look like worldly significant things. It's not about the glitz. It's not about the glam. It's not about the money. It's not about the might. It's not about the power. There aren't any consultants. There's not a marketing plan. There are no professional staff, well-trained and well-paid. Those methods will produce no lasting benefit at all. They will just make another truckload of wood and hay and stubble, which will burn. No, 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 says God. Not by might, nor by power will you rebuild this temple, but by my spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. So don't look on my spiritual work with fleshly eyes and despise it because of its smallness. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. You and I have got a house to rebuild for the Lord, don't we? I think his message to us is very similar. Number one, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Stop valuing the earthly above the heavenly and the spiritual. Stop valuing the earthly above the heavenly and the spiritual. Number two, and I didn't put this in there, I should have earlier, return to God with your whole heart. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 3, God says, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You ever, you know, there's that, that old line in the hymn, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I don't know about you, but my heart is so prone to wander. I don't have to get into gross and serious sin. I can just get distracted. I can just stop reading my Bible first thing in the morning and pick up the newspaper. And it doesn't take many days of that before my heart wanders away. It, and God always sends his spirit. Sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes months. But he always sends his spirit. And he always says, hey, Brian, return to me. Life is pleasant with me. You're happiest and most productive when you're walking close with me. Why do you keep wandering off? Return to me. And God says that to you, too. Return to me. Whatever the, got stuck in your craw, just spit it out. Return to me. Thirdly, get serious about your worship. Get serious about your worship. Prepare. Think about it. Meditate on it after it's done. Bring your best. Give your best. 
Give your time, give your talent, give your treasure to God. You will, you will make investments that will pay off for eternity if you do that. You know, if you spend all your time fiddling around with your flower bed or cutting your lawn, making sure your grass is perfect, that's great. You know how long that grass is going to stay perfect? Not even a week. But if you come and say, you know, I'm just going to keep my house from being a wreck, but I'm not going to spend all that time on my lawn or my flower beds. It's not worth it. I'm going to take that time and I'm going to give it to Jesus. I'm going to come to the church and figure out what my ministry is. I'm going to tell my lost neighbor about faith in Christ Jesus and how to go to heaven when they die. And I'm going to say, come to church with me. We've got a place that we're rebuilding here, a temple being rebuilt. Maybe you're a living stone in that temple too. Number four, look for a shepherd after God's own heart. One who will teach you from God's word and feed you on knowledge and understanding, not sugar. If you've got a guy like that, listen to him. Learn from him. Obey him in all things lawful. If you don't think you've got a guy like that, tell him to go find another job and get yourself a faithful shepherd. And lastly, do not despise in your grief the day of small beginnings. There's a new work happening here. There's new things happening. Some of it you know, you plant that garden and that first tomato comes up, it doesn't look like much. Some of it doesn't look like much. Awana didn't look like much last year at all. It's not anybody's fault. It's just this year is the year God chose to bless it. And he blessed it. And now all of a sudden it's doing other things. Other things are happening because of Awana. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't look on that and say, Pastor Brian's little thing here. I remember when this place was filled with this, that, and the other, and we did this, that, and it's like, those days are gone. This is the new beginning. It's going to look different than the old work. That's okay. God is with us, and he is overseeing and empowering the work to make it look like what he wants it to look like and what he wants to accomplish, not what I want to accomplish, not what you want to accomplish. And if we insist on our own way, it's just going to be more wood, hay, and stubble. It's just going to be built on pride and vanity and worldly ways of reckoning and valuing of spiritual things. And if, if that's what's going to happen, then God has a word for us, doesn't he, from the call to worship from Isaiah chapter 66. You know, they were all infatuated with that temple how it compared to the last one and you know when they get Herod in there a few centuries later he he builds it out great Herod's temple they called it it was Herod's temple all right because there wasn't much of God's stuff going on there by the end but Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 thus saith the Lord heaven is my throne earth is my footstool what is this house that you would build for me what is this place of rest I can't find it. Your big glorious building that you love so much, I can't find it. Where is it? No, no. All these things my hand has made. 
And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Here's how I do things. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what accomplishes the works of God. Not the pride of man. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. Because then God gets the glory for whatever happens. You bring in the right man with the right resources, hire the right consultant, put together the right program, and you get a result. And it's a human result. And God's not anywhere in it. And nothing of any eternal value happens, or not very much. But you get somebody, a group of somebodies, who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at the word of God. He will exalt that people. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. We come... Once again, a week late, but that's okay, to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. I love the Lord's Supper. I love it for a couple of reasons. First of all, the gospel is proclaimed here in bread and wine. Second of all, God shows up here in a way that he doesn't show up anywhere else. Now, we don't believe in transubstantiation and all that stuff. The bread stays bread. The wine or the juice stays wine or juice, depending on what you're picking. But spiritually, something happens. Spiritually, we feed on Christ in our hearts in a unique way. Spiritually, we, we drink his blood, and our souls are drawn upwards to him. And we commune with him. We fellowship with him and with one another in an invisible spiritual way that transcends ordinary experience. We might not even be aware of it. But if you learn how to seek it out and be attuned to it, Calvin says there's a mystery here. <laughs> you can't really understand it. You just got to feel it. Now, that's a rare thing for Calvin to say because he wanted to understand everything. He says you just got to feel it. So, so... Reach out and ask the Lord to reveal the mystery to your heart. Father, we ask that you would set these elements apart from a common use to a holy use and that you would bless them and that you would bless us in the eating and drinking of them such that when we eat the bread, our hearts do feast on Christ. And when we drink the cup, our hearts do rest in the blood of Christ which purchased our redemption. And we draw closer to you. And we're made a little more like you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. On the night in which our great king was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you.
body of Christ broken for you. You see all of it. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And when he had blessed it and given thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples and said, take this and drink. This is the cup of the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of the sins of many. We have both grape juice and wine in the communion tray. You select the one that's appropriate for you. The wine is in the tinted cups. The grape juice is in the clear.
blood of Christ shed for you. Drink ye all of it. The Apostle Paul says that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he is coming back. And everything is wrong, it's going to be set right. And all that is evil will cease to vex us anymore. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. Jesus invites us to walk with him in that kingdom, in that power now, exactly where you are, to live a life of complete sufficiency and joy and peace in him. It's not something that happens automatically. You've got to learn how to do it. Do you want to? You want to be more than you are now? Do you want to have joy and spiritual power to deal with the things that are vexing you in your heart? To be rid of sin, your temper, your tongue, the despair that so easily overtakes you? You can be rid of all of that if you just learn how to walk with Jesus in the kingdom. Let's sing our closing song together, shall we? Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise. With a mighty hand. Stretched on, love in 
forever. Amen. 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 Now, may the God of peace grant you peace, unless you don't know the Prince of Peace, in which case I pray you don't have a moment's peace until you make peace with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.